So tonight I'm going to talk about um, rapture, which is the fourth um, factor of awakening. And I've been thinking about this uh, language that we use of factor. And I, you know, I think that um, I've always thought of factor of awakening. Yay, Ramon, did you do it? Yes, thank you. I've always thought about this um, word factor and realized that I've been uh, assessing it as uh, something that you have to produce in order for awakening to happen. But as I've been reflecting on it in preparation for tonight, I've been realizing that it's actually a description. These seven factors of awakening are descriptions of actually what happens with awakening. So if as we speak, you recognize these qualities in your own mind, heart, and body, please take pleasure, take joy, take delight in your own awakening. And maybe there's some mini awakenings that eventually come to a maha awakening. I don't know. But it's, uh, so, so it's these kind of encyclopedic description of how the body-mind-heart is in an awakened state. So, um, tonight I'm going to talk about rapture, as I said. And just to hold in mind the first three Pam spoke about mindfulness on the first night that we were here together, and we've been um, all speaking about it in, in an interweaving way with the other instructions and descriptions that we've been giving you. And Eugene spoke about investigation last night. And this morning I wove in um, in the in the uh, instructions wise effort or energy that this that an energy awakens in us as we travel through this journey of the awakened mind. So joy, pity, is what we'll talk about tonight, and um, hopefully I'll also talk a little bit about effort or energy. We'll see how that goes. So to reflect on joy, this is from Khalil Gibran. Your joy is your sorrow unmasked.
and the selfsame well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. I'm going to read that again. Your joy is your sorrow unmasked, and the self-same well from which your laughter rises was oftentimes filled with your tears. And how else can it be? The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more joy you can contain. And I start that way because I think that certainly for myself, when when I reflect on joy, I sometimes forget that it is along the same continuum as sorrow. And that joy does not deny sorrow, but embraces and includes it. As Rumi, the Sufi poet, says, this being human is a guest house. Every day a new arrival. It's a guest house where all of these emotions and events and joys and sorrows and everything that it means to be human comes and goes. So that when we consider joy, it's imperative that we consider sorrow. That we don't deny it, we don't push it away, but just as we want to invite joy, we recognize sorrow as a close thing, that it's part of the the journey of being human. And that men often it is sorrow that teaches us, that awakens us into joy. I've been on quite a journey now for three years since my beloved husband of 38 years died. And in the beginning, as he was dying, and when he died, and after he died, I thought that my I could never recover. The sorrow was the deepest thing I had ever known. He was an amazing human being who was definitely my better half. And beloved by just about everybody I know that knew him. An Englishman, uh, he loved soccer and um, actually did the impossible, which was to eventually get me to like it too. (laughs) 
So oftentimes we would sit together and watch soccer. And of course, he would have to explain to me the craziest rules I have ever seen in any game, except for cricket, right? Someday, if you really want to have a laugh, have an English person explain to you what silly mid-on and silly mid-off means. That Those are actual terms in cricket that are rules about where the batter can stand. So these three years have been um, really an amazing journey from Deep, the deepest sorrow, I, sorrow that I thought was not possible. From that very deep sorrow to a quiet joy. And that quiet joy, I think I can actually um, include in this factor of awakening that piti, P-I-T-I, that is often translated as rapture. When Eugene and I were emailing about who was going to do what, (sighs) he said, joy. And what did I say, Eugene? I said, I don't want to do joy. I don't want to, I'll do it, I'll do equanimity, but I'm not going to do joy. And so I don't know how you did it, (laughs) but here I am, right? (laughs) I mean, I was dead set against it. So I've had a really kind of wonderful time um, reflecting on on joy or rapture, and realize. And I think the deepest realization is this um, marriage, this wedding of of joy and sorrow. And rather than calling it rapture or joy, I think I'd like us to agree that it's actually joyful interest. So that rapture feels like a state, but joyful interest is a process. And it's a process of finding the deepest place where we can actually appreciate being human. With all of the beauty and the violence and the oppression and the generosity and the warmth and the cold and all of the ways in which we are by ourselves and we are related to each other and the ways in which we are not related to each other. So if we talk about joy as a state, a static state, then it feels as if it's something that either you can get or you can't get. But if we consider it as 
a process, something that happens over time as the mind awakens, as the heart awakens, as the body awakens, and we begin to understand deeply this being human as a guest house, this being human in which things come and go, nothing stays the same, especially us. We grow from being an infant into being a a child, a small child and then an adolescent and a teenager and um, all up to young adulthood through middle age and then through uh, seniority. And all through that journey, these joys and sorrows weave themselves in such a way that we learn on this planet that is a great school for profound learning, a profound journey to awakening or to wisdom. So it's as if we are uh, explorers in this life. We come to a retreat because we feel that urge for exploration. We see this body, this mind, this heart. We see all of the sadness. We see all of the joy. And there's a yearning for something deeper, for a deeper understanding of what is this? Eugene, last night, I think it was, or I'm totally confused about where I am and what the dates are and all of that. So, But whenever Eugene was speaking, we were talking about Kusan, the Zen master, who said, what is this? Were you? You didn't name him. Yeah, well, I, I named him because I went to a retreat once at IMS. And we sat for three months and really worked hard, really worked hard, you know, every day, 14 hours a day of sitting and walking and sitting and walking and sitting and walking. And of course, at the very end of those three-month retreats at IMS, they give you a small treat, which is a different teacher comes in for the, <laughs> the last day. That's your big treat for having endured for three months. And he came in with his stick, and uh, he very, um, very, you know, hearty-looking uh, master. And he said, "Ah, sitting three months don't get you enlightened." <laughs> oh Jesus! <laughs> And he said, and he said, as Eugene said, one important thing, and he banged his stick on the floor and he said, one question, what is this? What is this? What is this? And he walked out of the hall. (laughs) 
so that was our big treat for the <laughs> for sitting for three months. <laughs> Great joy. So what is this? What is this? What is this? And this laughter and this recognition that that is in some ways it's true. Isn't that why we come here? We come here to know what is this? What is this? And we, we practice mindfulness and we we're diligent at investigating and looking and seeing what is true. And we come to a place from time to time where the energy of this deep practice, of this profound practice that we do, and of all of the ways in which you Uh, exercise your effort and your energy, come to a place where whatever is arising can be joyful, no matter what it is, whether it's the tiredness of the body that has been sitting for hours on end. Or the joy of seeing the turkeys walking across. Or the deer that sprints across the, the garden as you had a profound thought to emphasize what it was. Or just the sheer pleasure of walking in the rain. But piti is not pleasure. Joy is not pleasure. Pleasure is fleeting and dependent most of the time on external circumstances. The joy of piti is the joy of living in the way that we live together here with an ethical foundation, taking great pleasure in the way that we live together in consideration, in love, in kindness, in generosity for each other, of practicing diligently because we really deeply and sincerely want to see and understand what is this? What is this? What is this? So in a way, it's like being a collector and finding that object that you have always wanted to know, to see, to understand and that feeling of recognition and discovery, that gladness of the heart, that joy, that interest, that extraordinarily, becoming extraordinarily interested in what you've discovered. 
So if you've, so if, as we've practiced together, and it's only been two days, but it feels as if you've really deepened quite a bit, even in these, just these two days, sitting with you, uh, with a few people in, in uh, meetings today, I could feel the way in which you're quite settled and diligently practicing. It's beautiful. And so in a way it's like discovering this rare treasure and wanting to know it more deeply, wanting to know it more, understand it more. That's what you've uncovered. It's like uncovering something really precious. And that's the sense of rapture. And the word rapture feels as if it's really intense, really um, high frequency. But it doesn't have to be that. It can be the actual simple knowing of the turkeys or the or the deer. So when we feel enamored and enthralled, and we feel that passion for discovery, for wanting to know, that's the rapture factor. And sometimes you'll, if you read about it or you hear talks about it, especially from the Sayadaws, uh, uh, the Burmese Sayadaws and um, Asian teachers, They'll talk about the thrills and spills of, of rapture, that energy can flow through the body in a way that feels rapturous. And that kind of piti or rapture usually doesn't last that long. It lasts maybe for a couple of hours and then it dissipates, like all energies do. And yet there's a way in which... Um, considering it as a factor of awakening, it's even though on the surface it feels like that passing show that comes and enthralls us for a while and then goes away, that there is, um, I've been using the, um, the metaphor today, I don't know why, of, of a comet, that a comet is a, a star that's died thousands of years ago, and when we see it up from the Earth, what we're actually seeing is the tail of the comet. We're not actually seeing the star. And piti can be something like that, that we're actually seeing not just, not only the, um, the substance of the star, but we're actually seeing the tale of what happens after it's here. And so in a way it's an encouragement for deeper practice, for more practice. That bringing that joyful interest so that we can actually ask this question, what is this? What happens when we absorb into piti is concentration becomes deeper. And ultimately, as the piti is here, we can embrace it completely, 
we can allow it to be here, we can allow it to inform us that our practice has actually started to deepen. So from the mindfulness and the investigation and the effort of working with the energies, the PT develops, and we can, knowing that, we can continue. And what you can do if PT actually shows up, appears in your practice, if the mind is focused and still, you can actually abandon the breath and take up PT as your object. Now what I don't want to do is to talk about it in such a way that everybody starts practicing for that experience. When it comes, you will know it. When it, and perhaps you've even had a taste of it already, I don't know. Nobody has reported that, but one never knows. So that we, so that we see it, we know it, and we embrace it just as we embrace the sorrows of life, and we allow it to pass when it passes without disappointment, without thinking, that was good, I should get it again. What did it, where, now let's see, how was I sitting? I, I had my right leg on top of the left leg, and I was this way or that way. So to notice then the grasping that comes, which of course will immediately make piti shy. But it will deepen and intensify your training and concentration. So how do we arouse rapture? Just as, just even though I just said I didn't want you to be trying for it. But we can actually contemplate how to arise that joyful interest in what is happening. And one way to do it is to ask, what makes me come alive? And Perhaps an even more pertinent question is, where is my aliveness now? So the first question, um, what makes me come alive, is one that sets up the environment to bring about aliveness in the future. The second one, where is my aliveness now? is much more immediate. Is Dharma practice leading us into more aliveness so we can um, join Emily Dickinson who says to live is so startling. Of course she was pretty drab herself, wasn't she? But somehow she knew that living was startling. 
So we need the right mix in practice to keep our practice in, on fire. And in a way, it, keeping the practice on fire is like, is, it's interfacing with wonder. This, this world is amazing. There's that, that moment in, uh, the Bhagavad Gita, when um, Krishna is training Arjuna as a chariot driver, and Arjuna, and of course Krishna has come down from the gods to to train him, and um, Arjuna asks Krishna, he says, now that you're among men, among human beings, what is the most surprising thing that you've noticed, you've come from the realm of the gods down into the human realm. And, uh, and Krishna, Arjuna asks Krishna that, and Krishna says, the most startling thing that I've noticed is that uh, people are dying all around human beings, and human beings never think it's going to happen to them. So where is your aliveness now? And isn't that aliveness, as it is your inheritance as a human being, shouldn't it be really used well? So what makes us come alive? And what is our aliveness now? So there are two approaches that you can have what stimulates it, and what, um, what inhibits it. So that's a reflection. What inhibits my aliveness, and what stimulates it? And what the first thing, I think, that inhibits it <coughs> is how desperately we want to avoid pain. And somehow, and somehow we think that avoidance of, of pain is somehow the path to joy. So we, we may sometimes um, think that having a, a joyful life means that there is no pain, but I have met people who are quite ill were some of the most joyous people I've known. I know that when my husband was dying, I was amazed at how joyful he was. Absolutely amazed. I, I, I'd never seen him so joyful. There's something about being in touch with being an alive being in this moment that can be incredibly joyful. So reflect on that question of the avoidance of pain, even though it's unpleasant. And of course, we had that uh, practice this morning when we talked about unpleasantness, or we practice with unpleasantness. But since we're Dharma students, unpleasantness doesn't stop us, does it? The pain we've 
if we really um, investigate pain, we learn that a lot of the time it's self-inflicted and self-imposed. There's a wonderful sutta called the second arrow in which the Buddha talks about um, being able to have physical pain without having the second arrow of having the mind superimpose on the actual experience of the pain. So, as we worked with um, painful feeling this morning, or unpleasant feeling this morning, I hope that one of the things that you noticed is that you could actually get interested in it. This temptation to want to deny the pain, push it away, make it go away, thinking that that's what will return us to our joy or to our happiness. We want to instead put our hand on the fire if we're um, in the fire, if that having put our hand in the fire, we want the ability to take our hand out of the fire. We can take our hand out of the fire. That's what practice teaches us. That whatever um, second arrow we have put on physical pain, this kind of self-judgment and I shouldn't have done it this way or somebody's to to blame or all of that rather than attention to the pain itself that we can actually um, remove our hand from the fire and find the joy. So we move into the pain. And secondly, what brings us more alive? What stimulates aliveness? Where am I most alive? Where am I naturally awake? Find where we're most connected to life. What makes you connected? What is, what really makes you interested? And I imagine that when I ask the question of what makes you interested, that you begin to look outside of yourself, that you start to think, oh, well, I like gardening or I like to read, or I like to play the piano, or I like to listen to music, or I like this or that or the other thing. But 
but the interest is actually in you. It's not in the gardening. It's not in the piano. It's not in any of those activities, but it's actually the stimulation of your own being, knowing this body, mind, heart. It's like saying, I love you, and because I love you, you need to stay here so that I can continue to love, not recognizing that the love is in us already. It's not out there. So we've been talking a lot about internal and external and the relationship between the internal and the external. We can actually recognize that the love is already in us. And we find a way to stimulate interest through our natural inclination, which may be gardening, or it may be the love that we have for another. Where we're most interested, where we're most connected, that is where joy arises. And that interest that joy produces makes us more alive. And we can then follow our life's path as we um, investigate what is true for us and what, what, what is our true path. And then understanding that we begin to correct the course for this factor of enlightenment. So we find joyful interest is most available where we're most connected. And you saw that this afternoon with the inquiry practice. Some of the comments that you made about the feeling of connection, wanting to know others, other people's names. There was joyful interest illuminating the room as you were um, being with each other in that sacred space, in that sacred way of being together. Your joy is your sorrow unmasked. So there are 12 ways that they say 
it's um it can be developed i've lost my place here that's why i'm fumbling around Sorry, 11 ways to develop rapture. Recollection of the virtues of the Buddha. Rejoicing in the Dhamma. From ethics, free from self-judgment, self-blame and remorse. In developing concentration, experiencing a mind that is happy and clear, bright and peaceful. Rejoicing in the virtues of the Sangha. Considering your own virtue. Remembering your own generosity. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Considering the virtues of faith, charity, effort, and perseverance developed by the gods which caused rebirth in higher planes. You can take that how you want. Reflecting on perfect peace. Reflecting on the coolness of concentration or jhana. Avoiding coarse people and seeking refined friends. Very important. Reflecting on the suttas. And inclining, I like this one, it's inclining the mind toward developing rapture so that we we bring energy to our mindfulness so that concentration arises and the kalesas the the um, the energies in the body that are that, that keep us um, tied are kept at bay so what this points to is that the mind can be trained and that in the in the training of the mind it gets filled with rapture So I wanted to um, give you a little treat tonight. (laughs) It's not ice cream. It's not cookies. It's actually um, a short video that... um, is such an amazing example of pity. And you'll be surprised, it's not a, it's not a Buddhist um, 
video. Quite the contrary, actually. Um, but I wanted, I wanted you to really get a very beautiful sense of piti in a universal way. Not because there are, there are many ways in this human life that rapture and joy and joyful interest can come if we are devoted enough to the practice that we do, if we are devoted enough to living this good life that is ethical and considerate and um, fully employing our uh, whatever innate talents we have been gifted with. So Ramon, play it. An organization for children of prisoners. Many of these young people have been left behind in their schoolwork. And Whitley and this fine organization is making a difference. This has been an awesome night, isn't it, everyone? How many of you like Negro spirituals? And this is at Carnegie Hall. The black lady down south showed me something about the Negro spirituals, and I want to share it with you. Uh, you know, the black folk down south had more sense by accident than some of us have on purpose. You know what I mean? You didn't hear what I said. I heard an old black lady say, Son, if the mountain was smooth, you couldn't climb it. Uh-huh. Think about that. But did you know, she said to me, did you know all, just about all Negro spirituals were written on the black note? Oh. Anybody know a Mac? How does he do So you can meditate while this is happening. <laughs>
Notice your anticipation, your falling forward, your wanting it to happen. Notice all of that.
So while we're waiting, we don't know if we'll get there. So just do some practice with um, joyful interest. What's happening right now? How is the mind? Is there anxiety? Or is it possible to just be joyfully interested in what is happening internally and externally? What is the anticipation like? Is there anxiety for not knowing what's going to happen? Is there impatience or patience? Can you be joyfully interested in what is true? So Eugene keeps telling us to be real. So let's be real. This is a pain in the neck. I did find a little poem for you, or a little, just a little passage that you might enjoy hearing while I, while we're waiting. It's from Laurie Chapman, and it's a beautiful description of her meditation practice. She says, I like nothing more in the world than sitting on my ass doing nothing. And it's not my fault that I have this attitude because I happen to have an amazingly comfortable ass. It may not look like much, but if you could sit on this baby for two minutes, you'd see that getting up off this ass would be a crime against nature. Okay, so let's give up. So let's stay in our... um, Let's stay in practice. And just notice what happens when things are not going smoothly or they're not going the way we want them to go. Or do we fall out of rhythm with our practice? Or can we maintain this interest in what is true, what is our attitude? How can we practice?
So thank you, Ramon. It's okay, no problem. We'll just come back into um, So let's sit for let's sit for a few moments before we close. Come back into being interested in how the uh, break in rhythm affected your practice. The concern for doing having things work out the way we expected them to or wanted them to. Can you stay in your practice in a way that is joyfully interested in what happens when we don't get what we want or we don't get what we expect? Things go differently. Is the joy that was established broken just because we didn't get what we wanted? Or can that joyful interest that keeps investigating with effort and mindfulness be there? Can we know deeply the joy of being alive? And can we embrace in that joy the sorrow of disappointment, the sorrow of life and death. So from a small disappointment to the most uh, earth-shaking, the fact that we are here for such a short while and that yet time isn't always spent profitably. Can we actually know love as the deepest thing? That love that brings joy. and the joy that brings love. And let your joyful interest blossom fully, as large as is possible, larger than your body. Filling up the whole world the rapture of practice, with the sure understanding that a way of life, of ethics and kindness and generosity brings 
the kind of settling into one's body and mind that allows joyful interest, pity, joy, rapture, to arise full-blown to fill up the whole world. Thank you for your attention and your patience, and it's time for walking.